But you know, that only works if everybody is an owner or, you know, feels that they are in control of the direction of the business in some way that, you know, they're, they're not going to get uh, screwed over by some other party. We know every quarter we're going to look back and we're going to distribute some amount of money and amount of money. And that is, uh, I think the, the, for us, uh, the mechanism to, to be sustainable every quarter after quarter. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. No Esther this week, unfortunately, mm. as she is off ill, but we'll soldier on anyway and try to provide a little bit of her, what would you say, sort of more objective analysis on some of the stories? Well, she actually bothers to look at the numbers <laughs> half the time. That's true. Get well soon, Esther. So that extract you just heard is from Jasper Wang, who's the VP of Revenue and Operations for Defector Media. Defector was formed after a mass staff exodus from former Geo Media property Deadspin after an internal dispute about who knew its audience best. So Defector is now an employee-owned and operated news site that has introduced measures specifically to ensure its staff have a say in the business, even as they write for its audience. And I came out of the interview feeling very, very jealous about some of the freedoms that its staff actually have and what they can sort of put back into the business. Before that, as ever, we're going to get into our news roundup. And this week has seen the largest media launch in the UK for 30 years with GB News. So, Peter, how would you describe GB News before we get into sort of the launch and and reaction to it? Okay. We've, we're under strict instructions to be in there, to be very professional Mm -hmm, about this. mm -hmm. There's a point to GB News. There actually is a point. It's trying to fill a gap that is real or not is perceived um on the right of established news channels like the bbc sky news which are considered by some Mm -hmm. to be left-leaning yeah we've spoken about this in the past the idea that even the bbc which has a remit to be objective is seen by people on both sides to be sort of indicative of the of the worst aspects of kind of their, their own political opponents it used to be that, you know, that if the BBC got as many complaints from the left as it got from the right, it reckoned it was doing a decent job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the whole world has seen this kind of polarisation, whether you blame social media for that or, well, I don't know, sunspots, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> that There is this polarisation. So there's the anti-woke uh, kind of campaign going on, culture yeah. wars. Um, so uh, Andrew Neil who used to be at the BBC, actually, and, mm-hmm. and is a big noise at Spectator Media. Um, he's fronting up this uh, new channel, which is going to be <laughs> the home of free speech in the UK. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's backed by, among others, Discovery. I think they had investment of a tune of about £60 million, at least aimed to cater to that kind of anti-woke demographic, which is... Yeah, it's certainly growing in the UK. And what's, what I thought was interesting was ahead of the launch, p- even people internally were calling it, "Oh, it's going to be the Fox News for the UK." Andrew yeah. Neil has been reported on numerous occasions by yeah. saying this is going to be the kind of opinionated Fox News esque channel for the UK. Uh, other people have sort of dialed that back. I think some of its other staff have have said, "Oh no, it's not going to be Fox News esque," presumably well, because I, they I, know the kind of the reputation Fox has over here. 
Yeah, and, there, and there's independent people saying that. I'm, I'm a Rajan says that it's not. That's kind of oversimplifying. Uh, as, a, as a sort of outlet in even of itself, let's take let's look purely at its aims rather than its content or its uh, technical performance so far. You need to slice us up a lot of different ways. I yeah. Think. You know, the idea that as a pure, <laughs> looking at it purely theoretically as a media launch, there's an audience. Mm-hmm. Whether you like that audience or you don't like that audience, there is an audience. It's immaterial whether you like it or not. Exactly. So, in traditional media style, there's a bunch of people going after that audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, from that point of view, yeah, it makes sense. From a <laughs> civilization point of view, I think it's terrifying. <laughs> anyway, so before we get into that, the, the launch itself has been played with some technical mishaps. <laughs> to the point that there are internal reports that paint it as a kind of this picture of chaos and overwork behind the scenes to get it fixed. Numerous spelling errors. Um, my favourite. My, my favourite is they said that the uh, so Wales is qualified for the next round of the Euros, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll be playing the next match I think in Wembley uh, against Rome. Apparently, right? <laughs> uh, not Italy, but about <laughs> Rome. Well, God, I mean, I hope Rome can feel the team. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's a tiny pool to draw from. It's been a rough couple of years for them. It has. So it's had some spelling errors. It's had, you know, errors in, in terms of that. It's had a bunch of technical mishaps. Members of the public haven't helped. Uh, there have been calls <laughs> in from people, including Mike Hunt, uh, Mike Oxlong. And over the course of the week, uh, it also featured a number of Hugh Janus's, including Dan Wooden, as you mentioned, uh, Andrew Neil himself, and Nigel Farage. He got a lot of shit for his interview with Rishi Sunak, actually. I mean, Did he? again, whether you like Andrew Neil or not, mm. he's he's he can be quite a fearsome journalist. There has been a, a bit of a suggestion of some, you know, uh, reciprocal affection, let's say, between Tom Collusion? Harwood. Yeah, Tom Harwood getting a comment. Um, Oh, at yeah. a presser before a lot of the other news outlets out there. And then this kind of softball Rishi interview as well. Um, and, you know, we have seen people... In fact, you know, let's go into the elephant in the room here. So <laughs> apart from the technical issues, the pressure group Stop Funding Hate, which we, we've previously interviewed Richard Wilson, who is their founder. Um, it has been asking advertisers to reconsider placing its ad spend opposite the channel's content since even before the launch. But it has redoubled those efforts since... Um, and it's been making quite a lot of waves. Uh, it's certainly seen a lot of reaction. There has been pushback from, among other people, Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden. We've Dick. seen... <laughs> we've seen um, commentators, including kind of some of the staff of Press Gazette, have said, actually, no, this is a free speech issue if you're asking people to pull. Yeah, that's just bonkers. It's nonsense, yeah. Um, and just a bunch of other people have basically come out and said, well, look, how dare... Stop funding hate, exercise their consumer right to ask advertisers <laughs> to pull protest. I feel like I'm saying this a lot in this episode, but whether you agree or not, yeah, uh, that's stop funding hate's whole reason for being. Yeah, that is the point of stop funding hate is to get people to stop spending money in what they consider to be and any right-minded human being <laughs> considers to be hateful publications mm-hmm. or, or in this instance, hateful broadcasters. And yeah, you know, is GB News hateful? Is the Daily Mail hateful? Well, 
they come pretty close to the line. At it, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't even matter because it's completely immaterial. Because yeah, I said exactly. this on Twitter. If people, if there's been a spate actually of people saying, oh yeah, if it's so hateful, then why don't you point to some of the hate? And I think they're doing that in bad faith because then they can say, oh, I don't consider that to be hate. And yeah. they can just say, oh, it's a difference of opinion. What you're trying to stifle free speech. It doesn't matter. It's immaterial. Whether you like them or not, you have to accept that stop funding hate, hold their beliefs very genuinely. And they want to exercise their consumer rights to get these advertisers to pull spend. And that's within the brand's rights as well. They don't necessarily have to advertise against things to, you know, that they don't feel are commercially viable for them if they think that it's going to put their consumers off. And it has been bizarre to see so many people sort of say, advocate for, oh no, we have to force these brands now to advertise against GB News. Otherwise, it's a free speech issue. Well, we, we've talked about this before. That's the difference between free speech and... Free reach. There you go. Yeah. There's a there's another... <laughs> this is, like, this is like peeling a friggin' on you. There's, well, another, it there, yeah, there's another issue with this. Go on. Is that a lot of the people... You covered this for the drum. Mm-hmm. A lot of people advertising on that channel didn't know they were advertising on the channel yeah that was that was a really interesting one because yeah uh myself and john mccarthy and our editor cameron clark found out that well we looked into it and found that a lot of the brands who are advertising on gb news or were advertising had in fact bought this kind of demographic package from sky media who were running that kind of the, the ad side for gb news um and had sort of grandfathered gb news in without letting these brands know that their content would be appearing on GB News, as a result of which a bunch of kind of big spenders, Copperberg, Grolsch, Open University, Vodafone, Ikea. Have said, Ikea, yeah, yeah, have said, well, we're not going to be advertising on GB News, actually, and we're looking into how this happened. That's kind of a separate issue, and it speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of the traditional channels say, oh, you know what, it's a, at least with the traditional channels, you know where your ad spend is going, you know that you're going to have your content appearing on trusted sites, and then this kind of happens for TV, not the first time. I mean, the whole thing is actually a mess. The, the, the you know, <laughs> whether you agree with the content or not, yeah, the production values on this whole thing are just horrendous. It's yeah, the, an absolute it, mess. The the numbers don't make sense. Twenty five million. It just doesn't, and it, and it is reflected in the thing. There was a fantastic. Did you read the Irish Times piece? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Brilliant. It's yeah. really funny. Oh, which so, is probably the right word going about. I saw. Um, I think it was Janine Gibson basically saying, "Do not." Do not write about this because if you do, you're an idiot. For you're just kind of giving grist to this culture war. Yeah. You're giving them free exposure, and ultimately, it's like I said, I don't think that an ad boycott, even if it is successful, which it won't be, let's be real, because advertisers will just flock back to this as soon as the controversies die down a little bit. Ultimately, it's immaterial to GB News' successful failure because it's going to be its membership scheme, or it's going to be just kind of an arbitrary decision from Discovery Warner that's just going to wind it down. But wasn't that another piece out about the funders? saying something about it wasn't really mm-hmm. about financial success. It was more about this cultural agenda. Well, I th- actually being a little bit serious for a minute, I think the whole thing's kind of scary mm-hmm. because we've seen what's happened in the States, you know, and, you know, Fox News is actually the milder end of that. Mm. You've got... Um, Newsmax. Yeah, Newsmax. And what's the other one? Uh, one. That's it. Um, they're terrifying. They're actually terrifying. And y- you know, I've already heard. <laughs> if you follow that Twitter account, GB News fails. Um, you know, some of it's daft, some of it's spell mistakes and whatever. But actually, there's a couple of things in there. It's like 
when they're talking about the China virus. But we've heard that before. Mm. And that ended up in a friggin' insurrection in the US Capitol. Yeah. So there is a scary side to this that I just think is horrible. And I hope, you know, someone somewhere, whether it's Ofcom or maybe Andrew Neil will find his journalistic um, soul again. I don't know. Mm. Um, I thought we covered that pretty objectively. <laughs> I still will be so proud. And moving on to news in brief, the New York Times and The Athletic have ended their acquisition talks Mm. (laughs) because, surprise, surprise, they couldn't agree on a price. Mm. Um, Actually, there's no surprise because no one really knows what The Athletic's worth. Uh, You've talked a lot about this, Chris. Yeah, I've never... I was always suspicious of The Athletic. You know, financially, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, And so the fact that these talks have broken down Seems, I think, to me to be more reflective of the fact that the New York Times doesn't see where the athletics value is coming from post-merger. Where's it going to continue to get subscribers from? It can't continue to discount, which has been the big source of its, you know, a lot of its um, subscribers. I'm not saying it's flim-flam. I think it was a brave effort from The Athletic and its its co-founders to, you know, launch and instantly be the go-to place for sports news and analysis. And this is not the first time that The Athletic has... Fail to merge with yeah, somebody. That's else. that's the difficult part of the athletic. Yeah. That's because the Axios deal fell apart as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost like to get a proper look at the numbers and go, "Whoa." Mm-hmm. Moving on, despite consolidation, ownership of the UK magazine industry remains more diverse than newspapers. So we're taking this from uh, Press Gazette. Charlotte Tobin wouldn't. This wouldn't be hard though, because three families own eighty percent of UK <laughs> print newspaper circulation, which is <laughs> pretty scary. It is pretty terrifying. That is quite a number. This is a great piece from Press because they've really dug into the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, if you look at family ownership, there's two families own 33%. Burda and Hurst mm. uh, own 33% of the magazine and market in the UK, which I suppose is still pretty horrible, but um, <laughs> it's not 80%. Yeah. What was, what was the squeaking? I was a bird outside my window. Wow. Yeah. That's really and if you can identify that bird, please do write into <laughs> news at voices.media and win a uh, microphone cover, a windbreaker. An orange one. Yeah. An orange one. Nice. Moving on, annual revenue at ByteDance, which owns TikTok, jumped to $34.3 billion. Pocket change. Pocket change. These numbers. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, that, that's double. Year on year, that's double. Um, actually, it's 111%. I'm mm-hmm. being asked after that. It's 111% for being precise. But these numbers are weird. Okay, so profits went up 90%, but it still posted a net loss of $45 billion. Mm-hmm. Well, you, need a, you need a degree in accounting to understand some of these numbers. And so the week, which we have covered extensively actually on Media Voices, yep. it's never really done too much on the old internet, but it looks like things are starting to change because it's redesigned its US site to catch up to advertiser demand for more native advertising opportunities. Uh, yeah. I mean, we've always said you need that kind of broad revenue base. Yep. And to some extent, a lot of kind of the, the older, more established legacy title sites still haven't caught up with that. So it's going to be interesting to see how this, look, you know, ultimately how this plays out for them, whether this does translate to much of an increase in ad revenue. 
So I talked to Holden Frith, digital director for the week uh, last week, um, and he he couldn't give me any details, but he says that they are working on some a lot more digitally stuff, digital type stuff for the week. Um, so this is definitely one to watch, I think. Uh, Skift founder Rafa Ali says travel is back, baby. Oh yeah, <laughs> and just to prove it, um, they've bought. Uh, the hotel industry newsletter, the Daily Dot, well, <laughs> the Daily Dodging Report. <laughs> They've bought the hotel industry newsletter, the Daily Lodging Report, uh, which is like a 25, 26 year old newsletter that talks about um, the hotel business. Um, I see, this is such a good acquisition for them. You know, they, they always have that tripartite structure of kind of news and events, and then uh, information and analysis. Yeah, and this just kind of covers. At least two of those. It makes it makes so much sense for them. Um, well, in the UK, Channel 4 is reportedly being lined up for privatisation as soon as next year, with the Financial Times citing the rise of streaming services as commercial rivals to linear television as a reason for the government putting it up for privatisation. Um, yeah. This makes me twitchy, is it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, God. Now I'm, now I'm going to talk about A16Z. So, A16Z, or Z, has entered the publishing world with Future. Which Confusingly. Which is confusing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. You would have um, thought they would have done the barest minimum of just checking that there was no major, major publishing house anywhere called that. I can't imagine Future's not called them on this. Yeah. Even if it was just for the PR. Anyway. Which Future? Um, <laughs> that's exa- so, you've got Future run by... Andrew Anderson Horowitz. <laughs> then you've got Future, the publishing company, and then you've got the future. The future, yeah. Who's on first? <laughs> exactly. How do you talk about this? <laughs> uh, anyway, Future from Anderson Horowitz. Is that's the one. <laughs> it sounds like a it sounds like a perfume. Maybe that's why they did it, <laughs> so that people have to say their name future every time they say Anderson Horowitz. So that the what the word Future and Anderson Horowitz get. Oh, that's so smart. Linked in people's Yeah. Mm. Very clever. This week I spoke with Jasper Wang, who's the VP of Revenue and Operations for Defector Media. Defector was formed after a mass staff exodus from former Geo Media property Deadspin after an internal dispute about who knew its audience best. So I asked Jasper about its tiered subscription options, where it's going to find new sources of revenue, whether other companies can recreate its benefits, and how he went from a reader of Deadspin to co-owner of its successor. But to begin with, I asked him to explain how Defector came to be. So uh, Defector is a sports blog and media company. Uh, We launched in September of 2020, but our founding team included uh, 18 writers and editors who were all previously at Deadspin, Mm -hmm. uh, but they quit very publicly in November of uh, 2019. Um, So this is sort of the the spiritual uh, successor. Uh, and we are cooperatively owned uh, with no outside funding at all. Uh, and the website has a metered paywall with subscriptions starting at uh, $8 a month. Nice. Well, I mean, we got the, there's so much already there to dive into. I know that everybody quit very publicly, but there was, I suppose, what was the impetus for that for that sort of mass exodus of people? Yeah, so uh, for those who have followed the, the various Gawker twists and turns over the years, uh, Gawker went bankrupt. Yes, several. Uh, Gawker went bankrupt um, after the Hoke, Hogan, uh, Peter mm-hmm. Thiel trial, uh, got sold off to Univision as Gizmodo Media Group, um, at some point uh, was then sold to a small private equity fund um, and rebranded as Geo Media. 
Um, and at that point, uh, the new leadership at the company, uh, who continue to run uh, Geo Media today, uh, there were just significant conflicts between um, the overall leadership and then uh, the editorial direction um, of several of the properties, but pr probably most acutely that conflict was experienced at Deadspin. Mm. Um, uh, the inciting incident was there was a memo that went out that uh, asked the team to write exclusively about sports. Um, yeah. Our group of writers and editors famously uh, have diverse interests and, you know, just write about, I mean, if you go to our About Us page, it's we write about uh, sports and politics and pop culture and weird stuff on the internet. <laughs> and uh, they really, uh, ex the executives really took uh, issue with the weird stuff on the internet in particular. Uh, and so as sort of a poke in the eye, um, the staff put up only non-sports uh, <laughs> stories for a day. That's uh, the kind was, of protest I can get behind. That's fantastic. Yeah, it would, and the interim editor-in-chief, uh, Barry Pachesky, was uh, fired uh, immediately for his uh, insouciance. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest of the staff uh, quit within uh, like 48 hours after that. It's interesting as well that you... You've touched upon this idea that it was the staff who knew what the audience wanted better than kind of the you know the owners and the higher ups. And I do remember, as you said, that there was a huge amount of non-sports related content on there. You know, Deadspin was one of the uh, blogs I would regularly visit across the network. So I would go to bounce between Jezebel and Kotaku and, and Deadspin. I remember they had that esports focused um, sort of niche vertical within it. I think it was called Compete. Yep, and yep. I suppose it then speaks to this idea that. It, ultimately, it was a passion project for the staff, and it wasn't necessarily that that for the for the kind of the higher ups. So, what impact did that decision have on how the company is organized now? Why is it employee owned? I suppose. Yeah. So the operating model and the business model. I mean, both of those come directly from just knowing their own audience. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we take the business model first, we are subscription supported um, because we knew there was a rabid group of uh, readers um, mm -hmm. and. Uh, is that millions? No. Um, but is it, you know, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands? Uh, yes. And so, you know, the, the quickest way to get to, you know, some cash flow was to ask people to pay subscriptions directly. And we had 10,000 paid subscriptions within 24 hours of announcing the project. Uh, we're at about 39,000 total paid subscribers oh, right now. Uh, yeah, so that's been, I mean, we've been able to expand the newsroom by a, a couple of people. We've been able to, you know, pay everybody, uh, you know, a, a, a workable salary. Mm. Uh, we've announced policies around uh, freelancers, online harassment protections uh, that we're quite proud of. Uh, so overall, you know, we're feeling really good about where we're at um, on the business model side. Uh, you know, where you were getting at was the, the operating model is also uh, very different. Mm. Um, you know, as we're entirely employee owned, I think if you looked at the the newsroom side, you would say, oh, this is actually pretty conventional. Um, uh, Tom Lay is the editor in chief. We have a set of editors. We have staff writers. Uh, you know, Tom sets the editorial vision. The editors assign stories, commission freelance pieces. Uh, that's all, you know, fairly conventional, conventional, which is not, not to say that Tom isn't, you know, always looking for ways to improve the process. Uh, and the experience within the newsroom, but again, it's it sort of it will be. If you looked at it, you would say, "Okay, I, I basically get how how this works." Mm. Um, if you looked at the operations of the business, it's very different from other media companies um, or other companies in general. I guess um, I, I'm the business leader, but I only have 
uh, one full-time person and one part-time person on the business team. Mm. We have you know, an array of outside partners and, and vendors, outside legal counsel, uh, accounting, bookkeeping, um, HR partners, obviously all of our tech uh, is outside. So you know, I, I sort of manage across all of those. Um, but our editorial staff, all of them, are expected to participate in the operations of the business. And mm. so, you know, depending on the week or the person, you know, I'd, I'd estimate they spend somewhere from, you know, five to 20% of their time thinking about quote unquote business decisions that um, they otherwise wouldn't in their editorial role. It's, it's interesting as well, I think, that a lot of the places that would advocate for that strict division are the ones that would then say, well, you know, any organization, any media organization that tries what you have done cannot be self-sufficient. But from my understanding, you are self-sufficient. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, so a part of this is uh, we pay ourselves a sliding scale. So everybody mm. gets a, uh, a salary that we get paid, um, you know, biweekly, uh, like any other salary position. But then every quarter, we look back at the last quarter and say, okay, you know, which of this cash can we distribute as additional salary? Mm. Um, and so it's a pretty conservative uh, as far as cash management goes, which we're never paying out ahead of, you know, actual recognized profit. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, that only works if everybody is an owner or, you know, feels that they are uh, uh, in control of the direction of the business in some way that, you know, they're, they're not gonna get uh, screwed over by some other party. Uh, mm. You know, we, we know every quarter we're going to look back and we're going to distribute some amount of money. And that is, uh, I think, the, the, for us, uh, the mechanism to, to be sustainable every quarter after quarter. Um, I, I've got to be honest, I'm, everything you say is, is bringing up two or three different questions I want to ask. And I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm inevitably going to disappoint some of our audience by not asking questions around, you know, everything from, well, how does it... How does that impact how people pitch stories and how do people decide what to cover? How much time do people t typically allocate to thinking about those kind of new editorial and business opportunities? But I think the, the primary question then I think that we, we desperately need to ask at this point is, is this a, a one-off effectively? Do you think that Defector and the circumstances behind it are a sort of a unicorn within the media industry? Not necessarily in terms of, you know, being a huge, great... Um, enormous success story yet, but in terms of how it is employee owned and operated, or is there more space for that? Yeah. So I think, you know, when we, when, when you say a, a similar model to ours, I think we're asking about two separate conditions. So, mm. so the first is uh, subscription supported media. And then two is cooperatively owned media. Mm. So I think the subscription supported piece is actually trickier. Um, we are in a unique position. I mean, it's not so unique of a position, um, but it was a you know group. It was a newsroom that uh, was beloved and uh, fell apart for non-financial reasons. Yeah. And so uh, we already had this following. Um, in some way, you know, there's 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 a unsaid subtext sometimes, which is that you know our writers, they were they're not. Lucky is the wrong word. It is not lucky that our writers had to quit their jobs, and yeah. be unemployed for a stretch while we figured this out. Um, but you know, it is the reality that their uh, careers were underwritten by uh, institutional media. Uh, you know, most obviously the the, the Gizmodo Media Group, uh, yeah. but also you know local media across DC and the Bay Area, Florida, Philadelphia, and you know other publications where they were at, such that they were able to develop a following. 
um, that would come with us and mm. immediately recognize the quality that they would be paying for. Um, I, we're not that unique, you know, like I can point to the Colorado Sun and Block Club Chicago. Uh, they were started by former employees of the Denver Post and uh, DNA Info Chicago. Um, so, you know, it happens probably more often than any of us would like that you can sort of reconstitute a newsroom pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, that road is much harder without that built-in audience already that you are pretty certain will be there and support you uh, directly. So I think subscription supported is hard. Yeah. But the second condition of cooperatively owned, I think that is really doable. Uh, mm. Like uh, Tom, Tom Lay and I probably once a month, we end up talking to some group of people who are interested in hearing about our story, considering whether to pursue it in one form or another. And I think those people get stressed out that they've never, uh, quote unquote, like done business before. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, not to underplay my own role in all of this, but like being a business person is not some uh, uh, concentrated expertise that you mm. need, you know, years and years of schooling and experience to do. It's not, you know, medicine or, or, or law. It's a it's a bunch of smaller skills uh, of which you can uh, assign out to different people and develop over the years. Um, you know, it's project management and process management, clear communications, managing trade-offs. Um, you know, I understand when people are stressed out about the financial literacy and mm -hmm. uh, I guess the you know applied legal literacy of the of the business side. But those, I mean, I have an outside bookkeeper and an outside lawyer. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm just I know enough to be dangerous. The rest <laughs> of those skills, though, you know. <laughs> Like editors and writers, they've already been building those skills. You just have to apply it to a business context uh, rather than a writing or a reporting one. Your your tiers for subscriptions and memberships run the, you know, they really do run the gamut from being a sort of, what is it, $120 lowest tier? Is that right? No, no, like $80, $80 lowest tier? Uh, yeah. $8 a month, $79 a year is our lowest tier, yeah. Right, yeah, all the way up to, is it Accomplice, which is the sort of the, the top tier? Yes, that's a thousand dollars a year. And so, how did you decide on those price points? Was there, and you know, how much are you sort of always rebalancing those scales? And I suppose what's more important for anybody who's listening who's looking at their own subscription strategy, how do you decide what benefits go into which tier there? Yeah, uh, great question. So, we, when we first set these prices last uh, July, um, I think there were two, there were three uh, uh, first principles that l ended up leading us to these three different tiers. Um, one was we knew that uh, the commenter community at the mm. old site was very strong uh, and people loved hanging out down there, making jokes, uh, building community. And, you know, we just believed that we could charge extra for that. You know, some people did, don't, don't actually want the, the, the access to that. And, yeah. and so, you know, make that uh, uh, the anchor for a slightly more expensive tier. Uh, the second principle was we did not want to end up in a place where, oh, we've actually convinced all the people who are going to give us money to give us money, but we just charge too low a price. Yeah. Now yeah, yeah. we can't make it work. And so we sort of played around with that low price. I think the lowest end, you know, when you look at other publications, the entry price is generally $5 uh, a, a month. Mm. And, you know, we sort of just did the back of the envelope math and said $5 a month, if we can convert 30,000 people, that's actually not enough money. 
Yeah. Uh, so we have to just make sure we're not shooting ourselves in the foot and, and make sure that that floor is high enough. And then, that's that's so interesting. I mean, the idea that you could that subscriptions need to have enough headroom built into it that the real, almost the kind of the super fans can go above and beyond to choose, you know, how much they support. That's yeah. something that you don't see at many media business models, that many media businesses. Yeah, I mean, and, and look, and then the, the, to the point of the, the super fans, you know, we the the, the longstanding joke was, uh, you know, most of our our biggest fans are just uh, lawyers who are spending their billable hours <laughs> hanging out in the comment section. Uh, and so we said, hey, if you want to give us more money than this, yeah, give us more money, please. And yeah. we'll you know, put your name on the website and give you some other goofy benefits. And, uh, and you know, more than 100 people took us up on that. Uh, so uh, it, it ended up working out pretty well. Um, to your question about what uh, benefits go where, mm. we are constantly thinking about are we doing right by you know the the promise that we've made uh and on the flip side you know doing right by our subscribers who've, who've given us their hard-earned money on the flip side is it um unfairly uh burdening some of our staff to mm. uh you know deliver on these benefits and so i think increasingly the the, the hope is we move towards uh, things that are not that that are just purely scalable. I think you know we're going to add more merch. You know that's mm. easy enough to do to send people free merch or discounted merch. You know it's it's one spreadsheet. You load it with people's addresses, and you know our our dropshipper sends it out. Um, or you know if we if we were talking about having a quarterly meeting for subscribers, and they could dial into a Zoom and um, you know hear about the the business. Uh, yeah. You know again it, it, it's the same amount of effort for. For one person than it is for you know tens of thousands of people, uh, and so I, I think we roughly got that right the first time through. I think there are some people on staff who would say, uh, you know, I get caught up doing some of this, and, and we want to in future years try to try to get that uh, uh, more evenly distributed and in, in, in a more scalable way to deliver the benefits. So where is that room for both editorial and commercial growth? Do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm gonna. I'll leave the editorial side alone. I, I yeah. really don't uh, break over that wall. Uh, you know, That's as a reader, I just I, I love the 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 diversity in, in our voices and what we cover. Um, you know, I would I would love for us to get to a point to be able to hire you know more staff writers and you mm -hmm. know the editors can make that decision on what coverage areas uh, they should focus on. Uh, but you know, on the commercial side, so about ninety five percent of our revenue right now comes from direct paid subscriptions. Um, and the other 5% is a combination of uh, merch sales, mm. uh, sponsorships on the site, podcast ad revenue, uh, Twitch streaming uh, ad revenue split. Um, and so in terms of growing, I think each of those places, it's sort of an unsatisfying answer, but you know, I, I do think we have uh, a ways to go on, on each of them. Um, yeah. For the subscriber base, I think we can still grow that. You know, every, every week or two, we get an email from someone who says, Ah, you know, I used to love reading you so much at the old site, and I, I didn't know about Defector, but you know, I'm glad I, I found out about it. And so there's there's still some uh, you know low hanging fruit, as it were, to to just reach those people who who are sort of wondering where where this group of writers went. Yeah. Um, but you know, we also hope our writing can reach other populations um, who didn't necessarily know the origin story, and they just they just like the writing and they're willing to pay for it, and, and I think that's there as well. Um, you know, the other revenue streams, I'd love for our pipeline of sponsors to be more regular. Um, we're launching a couple of new podcasts later this year that we're excited oh, about. Fantastic. 
you know, with the United States opening back up, we're hopeful we can get some traction with live events too. Mm. Um, and so like all of those areas we're, we're, we're bullish on, but it is all within a uh, context of, you know, sustainable growth, not, not, which is both meaning not investing too much cash ahead of that, you know, revenue coming in, yeah. but also not overextending our team. You know, we just can't, we're a small team and we can't overextend our, our editorial team to, you know, be d- doing podcasts and flying out to events while also fulfilling their, their core responsibility of, you know, writing the best blogs possible. So uh, again, it, it's just a matter of the, our, our incentives are all aligned. You know, we mm-hmm. would love to have more, more money uh, through the door. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, projects in, in hiring we would, we would love to be able to do, but we're also, you know, acutely aware of, you know, each individual person's available bandwidth to do more. And so, you know, if we can grow it, it, it if we can grow, call a 10% next year, that would be incredible, but that's not even necessarily the goal. Yeah. I've always been a big believer that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And <laughs> when we're set up that's in this place, phrase. you know, it, it's, it's, once we set the overall business model, no single quote unquote strategic decision is going to fundamentally shape the direction of the business. It's just, it's so much more important that everyone feels good about how we got to that decision and that we're all, uh, you know, running in the same direction. We're all willing to execute against it together. Uh, and again, it's not at the expense of, of financial success. It's, it's with financial success as one of a, a couple of, of factors here. So, yeah, I was wondering, just before we end, then, I, there, there are a couple of initiatives there that I, th- I really wanted to highlight because I think that they're, they're going to be of interest to the Media Voices uh, audience in particular. You know, we, we've spoken about, uh, we've done special episodes, in fact, on everything from, you know, tr- fair treatment for freelancers to ensuring the well-being of people who do work in the newsroom. So I just wondered if you could maybe highlight what exactly is going on around sort of anti-harassment and making sure that freelancers are fairly... Um, recompense for their work at the factor. Yes. Uh, yeah, let me, I'll start with the, the uh, online harassment policy. So Please. Uh, our policy is if one of our staff gets doxxed or otherwise harassed online, um, we, we already right now proactively pay for a service that monitors where your personal information gets posted online. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will pay for you to stay in a hotel if you feel unsafe. Um, we will pay for our HR consultant and our legal counsel to support you. Uh, we will encourage you to take paid time off. We will have somebody else look at your social media accounts to, you know, delete run the mill harassment and flag, you know, mm. more serious uh, issues to the, the relevant authorities. Um, and so, you know, I feel very comfortable saying we have the gold standard policy here. Uh, you could imagine a version of this that is a purely budgetary problem at other yeah, companies. I was just about to, I was literally just about to flag that. Yeah, there are, there are some companies, well, well, you say the gold standard, but for a lot of the, a lot of the places, you know, there are, there's almost no training. There's nothing, there's no protection given to employees as well. So yeah, they're kind of the, the budgetary restrictions of that. Yeah. I mean, I think fast elsewhere. If we talked about it only in terms of financials, I actually think it's pretty easy to make the case that this sort of policy has a long-term positive mm-hmm. ROI, re- return on investment. If your journalists feel safe and supported, they are more likely to stay here. They are more likely to do fearless journalism. Um, if you just assume small increases in employee retention and productivity, that pays for itself. 
But even if you set aside that argument and you said, yes, this will cost us several thousand dollars a year, you know, for our staff, that's a no brainer. Um, yeah. Some of them have been subject to terrible online harassment. They have seen it happen to colleagues. Uh, it, you know, it's absolutely necessary. And so again, it's, it's, it's when you are the decision maker, but you are also the frontline worker, you understand, you truly understand in your bones what this decision means and you can do right by, by your colleagues. It, our, our staff said, hey, we need a freelancer policy and we'd like to work with the National Writer Union's uh, mm -hmm. Freelance Solidarity Project. And so I said, that sounds great, uh, let's go do that. And uh, so we, we talked to uh, a number of folks uh, on their side who are super collaborative and uh, they put on the table a set of conditions that I thought were just very reasonable. Uh, and you know, I did not feel like it was a negotiation. Uh, I felt like it, this is this is reasonable, and this is how we want to treat people. And so, uh, yes, that that is all great. <laughs> um, and then once we, you know, ratified it and published it, I uh, was sort of shocked by the the uh, the positive reaction that we got on it. Um, I think this is an area where. You know, I sort of previously mentioned the idea that, uh, you know, it is uh, there are some things that that, you know, media loves covering media, but is in reality a uh, ailment of the broader uh, business environment. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one where uh, I, I think this is sort of a, a media specific uh, thing. And when you broaden out, you actually say this is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> You know, do we think it is controversial to uh, publish the rates that we are going to pay people and um, guarantee that we will pay them within 30 days after we say so? And, oh, my you know, God. I think everybody listening to this podcast now is going to absolutely be pitching you stuff because, oh, my God, we've, we've had people who haven't been paid for, you know, years. Yeah, yeah. And, and our staff, you know, they, they, they have their own horror stories. All of them have, you know, done freelancing at some point in their careers. And so, you know, they reassured me that that it is it is not the case that it is the case that we are that our policy is, is a, a meaningful departure from some other places policies. But, you know, again, I sort of I, I, I'm sitting here and saying <laughs> we we're just being more transparent. I think it's better when everyone is on the same page about what the process is. And, uh, you know, what, like, again, just purely on a business decision, whatever, like, gains in, whatever small gains I have in cash management from, you know, stiffing you for another 30 <laughs> days and, you know, paying you 90 days or 180 days down, like, I think we gain so much more in having a reputation of treat, treating our freelancers well, in the, you know, the, the quality of the pieces that get pitched to us in you know that sort of reputational benefits that mm. it is a real no-brainer and you know i think implicitly this sounds like uh uh, uh you know I'm, I'm i'm throwing shade i'm i'm uh <laughs> saying you know i other companies individuals surely would agree with what i just said but you know you get stuck in the bureaucratic uh nightmare uh of you know whatever entrenched processes or no processes you had at your big company. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as individuals, the person who runs, you know, accounts receivable or accounts payable at, at, at any random publication surely would also say, yes, I would love it if we could pay people in a more timely way. Well, I think, honestly, we should probably end there before people listening explode with jealousy about kind of the, the agility that you have and the, you know, the ability of freelancers to get paid within 30 days. That's it. So just as one final question then, if there was one piece of media that you want to really recommend to our audience, it could be a film, it could be a game, it could be a book, it could be an article, it could be a podcast, absolutely anything. I, I have to take this opportunity to plug the book, uh, God Spare the Girls 
by Kelsey McKinney, who is one of our staff writers at Defector. Uh, she is enormously talented. This is her debut novel. Um, I will admit that I have uh, not, uh, I did not get an early galley of it, so I have not actually <laughs> read it myself, but uh, it really uh, would be unfortunate if I did not plug that book. <laughs> yeah, true. So if you love media voices, what the hell's wrong with Um <laughs> seriously if you love what we do or even if you just like it a bit we have a monthly subscription option on ko-fi go over to ko-fi.com slash media voices and you can see how you can help us out get us new microphones get us new we don't need any more windshields we've got loads and loads Um, yeah but yeah you can help us out and we'd love you for it but if you are desperate for more media voices content then do sign up to our daily newsletter it contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us and a link to our latest episode occasionally we'll throw in a picture of esther's baby or one of my family puppies or a couple of meerkats like peter did yeah But until next week, when we'll be back with Esther and a fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and the views from the media world over the past week, thank you very much for listening and do stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.